Hello and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, June 25th, 2021. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. We'll begin with the cover story. Testing the Sun. Alliant Energy tests solar battery technology at Marshalltown Power Station. Next to Alliant Energy's generating station in Marshalltown, the utility company has been testing new technology with the goal of building on its clean energy blueprint to provide more sustainable and renewable energy to its customers. The Wisconsin-based company, which serves nearly 1.4 million electric and gas customers in Iowa, Wisconsin, Illinois, and Minnesota, finished construction on what it calls its solar garden near the Marshalltown facility last fall. Since then, it has been testing in tandem the combination of collecting solar energy and battery storage to store and deliver electricity to customers. This solar battery combination allows us to provide our customers with solar power during the day and night, said Terry Kuba, president of Alliant Energy Iowa and senior vice president of the parent company's utility operations. The solar field adds power to the grid when the sun is shining, and then our battery allows our customers to continue using this renewable energy resource in the evening when the sun isn't shining, he said. The solar garden is part of the company's clean energy blueprint, which includes adding 400 megawatts of solar energy by the end of 2023 and an incremental 100 megawatts of solar and storage by 2026, closing its coal-powered generating station in Lansing by the end of 2022 and switching the Burlington coal plant to natural gas by the end of 2021. Those moves will lower the company's cost of providing energy by about $300 million over 35 years. Cuba said the Marshalltown solar array is small scale, producing about two and a half megawatts of energy, enough to power 200 homes for a couple of hours. It's not large scale, but think about the future when we start talking about 100 megawatt batteries, he said. The Marshalltown battery is about a quarter of a megawatt. So when we start installing megawatt batteries, 50 megawatt batteries, as we scale that to provide those future energy needs, we'll see how that really does benefit the customer, he said. The solar garden is made up of 9,500 panels, which became operational in February 2020. The battery was put into service in October. It is one of three battery sites Alliant Energy has in Iowa, with each being used to test different combinations of solar power and energy storage technology, officials said. The Marshalltown site is the first battery that is directly connected to a utility-sized solar field. Alliant built its first solar system in Iowa at the Indian Creek Nature Center in Cedar Rapids in 2003. In 2015, it installed additional solar panels to increase Indian Creek's capacity. Alliant also has two solar gardens in Dubuque, which have been generating clean energy since 2017. Cuba said the lithium-ion batteries used by the company to store energy can last several decades, depending on how often they cycle or are charged and discharged. 
It will vary, but it's hard to nail down the exact number of years it would be useful, he said. Battery technology continues to improve, so we'll continue to see batteries last longer if you are charging them and discharging them quite often. When you think about all the research and development going into battery technology, it's just amazing. And that's why we're starting to see the costs of these large-scale batteries going down and efficiency really going up, really making them a cost-competitive energy option for our customers, he said. Since last fall, engineers and analysts have been monitoring how the system is operating and how to charge and discharge batteries to increase efficiency, Kuba said. He said the driving force behind the company's clean energy blueprint is the desire by customers for clean and renewable energy sources. The solar initiative is on top of the installation of 1,000 megawatts of wind by the company in recent years. Once the 400 megawatts of solar is installed, 46% of Alliance capacity will be from renewable energy. The company plans to reduce carbon emissions 50% by 2030 and is working to close all of its coal plants by 2040. We're very focused on affordability for customers, renewable energy, cleaner energy, and taking care of the environment. Those were all things that drove us as we came up with this clean energy blueprint, Kuba said. He said Alliant works to manage any price increases that would be passed on to customers to keep them as low as possible. We'll never say your bills will always end up going down, but we'll be very diligent on making sure we take care of customer affordability and reasonable prices for their energy, making sure we still have reliable and safe energy also, and doing our best to manage customer affordability the best we possibly can, Kuba said. He said the Solar Farms Alliant installs can also be an economic driver on the local level by providing jobs and lease payments to landowners when the company leases land for the projects. Kuba said, there's economic benefits associated with these solar facilities on top of the energy benefits for our customers. So couple that with the environmental benefits of no carbon emissions, no water usage. It's just a really good set of projects when we start talking about the solar projects. Our next feature story, Closer Look, Meet a Leader You Should Know. Sam Ethington, Senior Vice President and Chief Technology Officer, Corteva, by Kate Hayden. At the Research and Development Departments at Corteva AgriScience, Senior Vice President and Chief Technology Officer Sam Ethington is turning to his career experience to help guide the next few decades of developing and launching products for agricultural producers. We're a pure-play agriculture company focused on how we bring solutions to farmers and try to solve issues they have on their farm, whether it's producing more or being more sustainable in how they produce their food, said Ethington, who joined Corteva on January 1st. We're bringing inputs to those farmers, what seed they plant. We have biotech traits that we're making available to farmers, and we have a lot of chemistry in controlling insects, weeds, things like that, he said. Previously, Ethington was the chief science officer at the Climate Corp, 
and served in various roles over 17 years at Monsanto Company, including Vice President of Global Plant Breeding. There's roughly 20,000 plus employees around the world, and we all get up every day thinking about how we can help a farmer, how we help production or help the system be more sustainable, Evington said of Corteva. If you look at our legacy companies, there's a tremendous history of innovation and bringing solutions to farmers, he said. How do you describe your role at Corteva? As Chief Technology Officer, I oversee our research programs. What are we working on? How are we spending our money? Tracking against goals and the direction that we're trying to go as far as a research organization. You can break up our research into simple buckets. The seed part is how you create, say, better corn hybrids. We do that through our plant breeding programs. Our biotech trait program is taking a gene from another species and putting it into corn or soybeans. That plant now has a new tolerance for an insect, for example, that it didn't naturally have. On the chemistry side, it's the same sort of logic. You're trying to discover and create a new active ingredient that can control an insect or control weeds, disease. We like to think about these timelines being a decade-long initiative. What drew you to this role? After I got out of graduate school, I actually moved to Iowa, lived up in Ames, and worked for another seed company. I ultimately made my way to what was Monsanto at the time, and I worked there for about 24 years before joining Corteva. During that time frame, I did a lot on plant breeding and how we use new DNA techniques. Everything has DNA or RNA, and you can measure that and use that to help in your plant breeding program. In the late 1990s to early 2000s, I did a lot of work on what we call molecular plant breeding. I joined the Climate Corp where I worked on digital activities of how you bring data and information to a farmer to help them make improved decisions during their farming practices. It's kind of cool to create a new digital business and all the challenges with data and information. But ultimately, I had a chance to come to Corteva and I jumped. I was extremely excited about the opportunity to get to be part of this company. Here in Johnston, Iowa with Pioneer, this is the 95th year since that company was started here in town. It's really cool to be part of that history. That was the leading edge in technology, plant breeding, and how you do things. For me, it was a pretty easy choice to join a company that is focused on farmers and agriculture and has all those incredible components and historic innovation that we get to bring together. What are some of the biggest growth opportunities in Iowa agri-technology? Some of the challenges farmers here in Iowa are facing are really anywhere in the world. How do you become more profitable on the farming operation? We have good commodity prices right now, but roll back the clock a year or two and it was a different story. How do we make those inputs that we make available to the farmer and make them produce more? How do we make them more efficient? At the same time, we have a lot of new requests from society on how we produce our food, wanting to know exactly how it was done, where it was produced, what was applied to it. 
If you think about printing new solutions that help farmers be more sustainable, or produce a food in a different way that the general population might want to consume, we have a lot of work going on there. Biologics as an example. How to use a bacterium or a fungus to control an insect, or maybe even do partial control of the insect. Therefore, you may use a little less synthetic chemistry. A new technique that got a lot of attention this last year is carbon sequestration. If you think about an ag farm today, those crops are using a lot of carbon to go ahead and produce that grain and plant material. Agriculture can become part of the solution of how we deal with carbon in the atmosphere, and we see new opportunities developing for farmers to maybe be paid for that and actually get paid for how much carbon they're going to sequester into their field. What goals do you have for the next year in this role? We create new products against what we think are problems that our farmers are facing. I think for their organization over the next couple of years, we want to see that pipeline continue to advance towards commercial implementation so that, so that the value that we're creating actually gets out to farmers. It doesn't do much good to have a publication or something sitting on the shelf if the farmer doesn't get to plant it or use it. So we're very focused on how we advance the pipeline and get good products out there. For myself, I've been on the job now for five months or so, still learning an awful lot about the company and the incredible organization that I get to be part of. Not only just R&D, but the Corteva organization. It's how I contribute and help Corteva be successful in the next couple of years. If we're successful, then I know we're helping farmers be more successful. If farmers are more successful, I know we're helping society produce more food and a better food supply. So that's the reward at the end of the day. What have you been reading, watching, listening to lately? The last couple of months, I have been reading a lot about Corteva and our research organization. I'm trying to catch up on a massive amount of research and activity and company history. I enjoy listening to podcasts about technology, machine learning, and data analytics to keep up with that. It's such an incredible space and innovation. When I go out and take my walks, I tend to listen to data science podcasts. There's a bunch out there. I just scroll through and see which topics I want to listen to, and if they haven't caught my attention in the first five to ten minutes, I'll shut them off and jump to the next one. Sam Ethington at a glance. Hometown, Avon, Illinois. Family, wife, Liesl. Education, University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. Activities, hiking, hunting, fishing, habitat development. Contact, sam.ethington at corteva.com. Twitter, at Sam Ethington. Next, from the innovation update, nurses on demand. Through a pandemic and a nursing shortage, virtual nursing eases the day for patients and nurses alike. By Kate Hayden. One year ago, Dr. Joel Ward recalled standing on a hospital floor unit, watching his colleagues at Mercy One Medical Center endure the height of the COVID-19 emergency in healthcare. 
You know practically everybody that you work with every day. One of my friends I watched have a mental breakdown on the unit, said Ward, Chief Medical Informatics Officer of Mercy One Central Iowa. Ward wanted to change something, and he had the computer programming experience to do it. Mercy One Medical Center also had other healthcare leaders, including Diane Murphy, Director of Patient Logistics, and Linda Goodwin, Senior Vice President of Clinical Operations, Integration and Innovation, leading a team hard at work before the pandemic, preparing the Des Moines Hospital for a virtual nursing program that would change the way floor nurses are supported. The way care has been provided in the past is not sustainable. There's not enough nurses, pharmacists, physicians, Goodwin said. There is going to be a need to adopt virtual care, and when watching the patients, the care is better. From a command center on the south edge of downtown, six virtual nurses operate the controls from a desktop station with three computer monitors. A touchscreen computer monitor hangs in each patient's room. The patient or a bedside nurse can contact the virtual nurse at any time, who then receives permission from the patient before turning on their bedside webcam. The system can call in other specialists, such as pharmacists and dietitians. But hospital staff have also called in religious clergy and family members to video chat with a patient. At one point, I had 20-plus people on my monitor visiting with a patient who had been inpatient for 20-plus days, said Carrie Taylor, a virtual nurse at Mercy One. Taylor sees between 28 and 30 patients a day, answering questions, tracking healthcare orders, and assisting bedside nurses with their questions. Everything that I do behind the scenes takes away from what they have to do so they can spend more time at the bedside, Taylor said. Goodwin and Murphy had prior experience with virtual nursing. In Colorado, Goodwin observed other active virtual nursing pilots in the country and recruited Murphy to help develop a virtual nursing program using an existing technology company's platform. The model was immediately successful in preventing falls by patients in their hospital rooms, and virtual nurses developed real mentorship relationships with new bedside nurses. But the program was still expensive, Goodwin said. When Goodwin moved to Iowa, she brought Murphy, and the two began developing Mercy One's own virtual nursing program. Murphy and an advisory board were developing a four-year implementation program when COVID-19 arrived in the state in March 2020. It became immediately obvious that virtual was something that had to be implemented, so we went from a structured program development to, we need to get this done now, Murphy recalled. Computer programming was always just a hobby for Ward. But taking on the virtual nursing software project took a few weeks of after-work nights. As Ward built the software, Murphy sourced extra mobile tablets, IV poles, monitors, and carts to create the 10 initial mobile workstations that would carry virtual nurses into patient rooms. We were buying cameras from Best Buy, probably like everyone else was doing at the beginning of the pandemic, Murphy said. You could line them all up and each cart looked totally different, but it didn't matter as long as it had a camera, audio, and we were able to connect through the virtual platform, we could use it, she said. 
Within two months, Emergency One launched the pilot on the COVID-19 wing, where patients were in isolation. Family members as far away as Taiwan joined virtual conferences between patients and their doctors and nurses during the height of the pandemic. Mercy One entered the virtual nursing program in a hackathon hosted by Common Spirit, the medical system's parent company. Amid 50 other projects, the software won first place in judging and the People's Choice Award. COVID was bringing in whole households of people. Moms and dads were coming in at the same time, Ward said. We were able to connect two patients at the same time so that they could just see each other, talk to each other, and bring their pastor in to talk with them, then have the provider right there talking to them. That was really the moment for me, knowing that, hey, we're on to something here. Virtual nursing eased some challenges brought by a chronic nursing shortage and the strain COVID-19 placed on existing providers. The program can extend the careers of nurses who need to leave physically demanding bedside care positions. It also offers an on-call mentor to new bedside nurses. The nursing shortage is not going to go away. I've been a nurse since 1982, and this is my fourth national nursing shortage, Goodwin said. Mercy One is developing the expansion plan to bring virtual nursing across all network facilities as other projects are moving forward. The network's centralized transfer center will soon manage patient transfer calls from more than 500 rural health care facilities to acute facilities. Expanding virtual nursing to those rural facilities could bring specialists into difficult-to-recruit regions and better support local hospital staff. Virtual technology and telehealth is the way of the future. I don't think we're ever going back, Murphy said. From the retail and business section, more mobile, convenient eating and shopping options here to stay. It seems to be the most profitable, says one local developer. By Kathy A. Bolton. By summer's end, Michael Whalen's Heart of America group plans to open hyper-energy bars in three Des Moines suburbs, Grimes, Waukee, and West Des Moines. The coffee and energy drink bar will only have drive-through lanes and a walk-up window. No indoor seating will be provided. We came out of the pandemic with some lessons learned, which is to shift toward the more mobile drive-through environment, said Whalen, founder, CEO, and president of Heart of America Group, which has offices in Moline, Illinois, and Des Moines. It's a dramatic shift from our historical orientation, he said. Johnny's Italian Steakhouse and The Machine Shed are among the restaurants operated by Heart of America Group, which also owns numerous hotels. Quick service restaurants and other eating establishments were evolving to offer even more convenience and fast service before the outbreak of the novel coronavirus in March 2020 forced the closure of sit-down dining areas. The pandemic quickened the change, with more reliance on drive through and delivery options, industry experts say. In addition, other retail sectors also began offering or expanding pickup and delivery options. As the United States emerges from the economic shutdown caused by the pandemic, a large spectrum of retails are 
retailers are continuing to offer curbside and drive-up pickup service. Two Panera Bread restaurants in West Des Moines are adding drive-through lanes. Hy-Vee is adding standalone structures with drive-up lanes for its Hy-Vee Isles Online service. Jordan Creek Town Center in West Des Moines dedicated 12 parking spaces adjacent to the mall for curbside pickup. Curbside parking locations are going to be a permanent part of shopping going forward, said Randy Tennyson, Jordan Creek's general manager. Tennyson and Whalen were among six panelists who participated in the Business Records inaugural Project 515, a series of virtual events designed to take a deep look into specific sectors of the real estate industry. The first discussion focused on retail and service industries. Other panelists who participated in the discussion were Christina Gaiman, Director of Public Relations for Hy-Vee, Inc., Richard Hurd, founder and president of Hurd Real Estate Services Group. Tafiq Shah, owner and operator of Lola's Fine Kitchen and Lola's Fine Hot Sauce. And Aaron Hyde, vice president and associate advisor of JLL Des Moines. Before the COVID outbreak, just 6.9% of retailers offered some form of curbside pickup, Hyde said. By August, nearly 44% of retailers were offering the service, he said. It's been such a convenience that I think that's definitely here to stay, Hyde said. It's definitely something that we're going to keep seeing improvements on. Hy-Vee, whose corporate headquarters are in West Des Moines, accelerated improvements to its Hy-Vee Isles Online service during the pandemic, Gaiman said. Demand for the service, which includes ordering groceries and other items online and driving to the store to pick them up, quadrupled during the pandemic, she said. In the first weeks of the pandemic, the grocery retailer set up temporary trailers at which customers could pick up their online orders. The trailers were placed in areas of parking lots that didn't impede traditional vehicle and foot traffic. Now, at numerous Hy-Vee stores, the trailers are being replaced with permanent structures, Gaiman said. Demand for Hy-Vee Isles Online has continued to remain incredibly popular, she said. I don't think we're going to see it going away at all. drive through lanes at quick-service restaurants also continue to be popular. Before the pandemic, more than 60% of restaurant industry traffic was off-premises, including drive-through, carry-out, and delivery. Hudson Reel, Senior Vice President of Research for the Washington, D.C.-based National Restaurant Association, said in an interview with The Business Record. The percentage of off-premises sales jumped to 90% during the pandemic and now is at about 80%, he said. The pandemic accelerated the expansion of drive-through and pickup and delivery services, Reel said. The quick service segment of the industry is better positioned to take advantage of expanding that off-premise market than some table service operators, he said. But even restaurants that rely primarily on on-premises dining are keeping areas that were created for carryout and delivery, Reel said. Shaw, who operates Lola's Fine Kitchen in Ankeny, said the restaurant made it through the pandemic because of its carryout and delivery business, which continues to be strong. 
We changed our menu a little so that prepared food would do well in carryout and delivery, he said. We're continuing to do that. New fast food restaurants, particularly in large markets, are being designed with no indoor seating, said Hurd, a West Des Moines-based developer whose company has over 130 properties in 12 states. We're doing a Chick-fil-A at one of our sites in Las Vegas, and they have designed it for 70 vehicles in the drive through he said. There will be no indoor seating. I think that's where that industry is going. It seems to be where the big players are focused, and it seems to be the most profitable, he said. Real agreed. The two things that drive restaurant sales are customer convenience and the ability to socialize, he said. The ability to offer convenient meal solutions on a much more accessible basis means it's entirely logical that some quick service operators are going to look towards capturing additional drive through transactions, Real said. From a sidebar in this article, fast food restaurants return to their roots. If you grew up in the 1950s and 60s, you likely remember driving to a McDonald's, parking your, window, your vehicle, and walking up to a window to order your hamburger and fries. And if you grew up in or visited California during that time, you probably remember the popular In-N-Out burger that only offered drive through service. In many ways, what's old is new again, said Hudson Real, Senior Vice President of Research for the National Restaurant Association. In the 1960s, when the quick-service restaurants started their rapid expansion, they actually didn't have a dining area, he said. In-restaurant dining became more readily available in the late 1960s as the fast food industry matured, he said. Now, a growing number of fast or quick-service restaurants are eliminating in-restaurant dining, offering only drive-through or drive-up service. Last fall, for instance, fast food chain Burger King unveiled a new prototype for its restaurants that is, set, that is up to 60% smaller than its traditional stores and includes two or more drive through lanes and a drive-in area where customers can order from the app and have their food brought to their vehicle. The prototypes don't include indoor seating. Real said more quick-service restaurants will likely design similar stores. A lot of these operators are now going back to their roots, he said. You're listening to the reading of the Business Record for Friday, June 25, 2021, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. From the Business Record's Project 515, panelists talk about retail service industries landscapes. Participants in the recent Project 515 event discussed the retail and services industries. They were asked to share one thing that has occurred in the past year, positive or negative, that they thought had permanently changed the landscapes of the retail and services industries. Here are their answers. Christina Gaiman, Director, Public Relations, High V Inc., one positive thing that has permanently changed the landscape of retail is obviously the increased adoption of online grocery ordering. 
That really pushed Hy-Vee to accelerate our e-commerce strategy to the tune of five years worth of growth and digital development in mere months. It also enabled us to create more jobs at each of our more than 280 grocery store locations to help meet that demand. Richard Hurd, founder and president Hurd Real Estate Services Group. During COVID, online sales increased from 12 to 13 percent of all retail sales to around 19 to 20 percent. That's a pretty dramatic shift. What does that mean? It means that lots of people are buying online and will probably continue buying online. But retail stores have also proven to be very valuable in the process because they provide a spot for people to go look at things in a showroom. They can try things on and they can return things they've purchased online. Aaron Hyde, Vice President, Associate Advisor, JLL Des Moines. Prior to the pandemic, 6.9% of retailers across the board were offering curbside drive-up pickup. As of last August, 43.6% of retailers were providing it. It's definitely something that we're going to keep seeing improvements on. Tafik Shah, owner-operator Lola's Fine Kitchen and Lola's Fine Hot Sauce. On our consumer packaged goods side, we saw a lot of transition to e-commerce, and a lot of our one-year plans were condensed down into a two-month period to make a big push to e-commerce. Retailers across the country have moved to more of an online digital strategy that's a hybrid between let's get customers through our doors to buy products, but also let's make it convenient for people who want to be safe. I think a lot of trends and transitions are going to be with hybrid brick and mortar retail locations having that pickup, but also making a strong push for digital. Randy Tennyson, General Manager, Jordan Creek Town Center. One of the biggest things is the evolution of omni-channeling, where you wanted a store to have a strong brick and mortar and a strong online presence. Now those have merged. The two have to partner together. Just because people are shopping online doesn't mean they're not going to go to a brick and mortar shopping center or retail store. They're doing both. They're in the store where they are also researching. If they don't see what they want, they're ordering right there from their phones. And Michael Whalen, founder, CEO, and president, Heart of America Group. Right now, we are beating, in many cases, the revenue we had in 2018 and 2019 on our restaurant side, and we're waiting for a very busy summer in terms of leisure travel. Our challenge in the long term is to understand how to operate at reduced staffing levels because of the labor shortage and still provide a hospitality experience that we want. In the business record, Leader Spotlight. Capital Crossroads names Samuelson as new director. Brittany Samuelson has been named the new director of Capital Crossroads. Samuelson fills a position left open when Emily Kessinger stepped down in April to return to the Wheats Company, where she worked before joining Capital Crossroads in January 2020. Former Iowa Clinic Administrator to lead Adair County Health System. 
Mercy One announced that Catherine Hillestad will join Adair County Health System in Greenfield as CEO, effective July 7th. Dubuque Bank & Trust Heartland Financial announced leadership changes. Dubuque Bank & Trust has named Tyson Leyendecker as president and CEO. Leyendecker will replace Tut Fuller, the bank's president and CEO since 2017, who has been promoted to regional president at Heartland Financial USA, DB&T's holding company, which was recently rebranded as HTLF. And Indianola's police chief retiring after 36-year law enforcement career. Dave Button, Indianola's police chief for the past eight years, will retire on July 2nd. Police Captain Brian Schur will serve as Indianola's interim police chief. Now turning to Dave Elbert's column, The Elbert Files. Changing Sides Republicans and Democrats have their symbols mixed up. For most of my life, Democrats revered our seventh president, Andrew Jackson, while Republicans cast Abraham Lincoln as their preferred role model. Today, it makes more sense for Jackson to be associated with Republicans and Lincoln with Democrats. As we've seen in recent years, history can change. And as far as Jackson and Lincoln are concerned, it has. Until recently, Iowa Democrats called their annual fall fundraising event the Jefferson-Jackson Dinner in honor of Jackson and Thomas Jefferson. In 2018, they dropped that title in belated acknowledgement of the fact that the slaveholding of both men does not square with 21st century values. Why Democrats put Jefferson and Jackson together is beyond me. During Jefferson's lifetime, he never had one good word to say about Jackson, nor was the populist Jackson comfortable with the refined European culture associated with Jefferson. In any case, Iowa Democrats have now rebranded their fall gala as the ubiquitous, if impersonal, Liberty and Justice Dinner. Republican President Donald Trump was an admirer of Jackson, which makes sense because Jackson, like Trump, was at heart a real estate developer who enacted policies that negatively affected minorities. Trump's mistreatment of minorities who wanted to rent apartments in New York is well documented, as is his suppression of minorities seeking to cross our southern border. Jackson, for his part, forcibly removed more than 40,000 Native Americans living on ancestral homelands in Georgia, Mississippi, Florida, and Tennessee, with 4,000 of them dying on the Trail of Tears journey to Oklahoma in 1838. Both Trump and Jackson were obstructionists who distrusted federal power and disliked bankers. Jackson vetoed the Second Bank of the United States, sending the country into a financial panic that lasted years. Trump's tariffs had similar adverse impacts. One of history's ironies is that Jackson, who scorned paper money, appears on our $20 bill, a denomination that is more widely circulated today than the $5 bill on which Lincoln appears. In any case, it's pretty clear that Jackson would be more comfortable in today's Republican Party, which Trump has recast in his own and Jackson's image. Now let's look at Lincoln. 
Lincoln's political roots are firmly planted in the Whig Party, which succeeded the Federalist Party created by John Adams and Alexander Hamilton, and which eventually gave way to the Republican Party in the mid-1800s. One thing Federalists, Whigs, and Republicans had in common was a belief in the need for internal improvements, what we today call infrastructure, paid for by government. A new biography by David S. Reynolds connects Lincoln with the, quote, riotous tumult of American life in the decades before the Civil War, end quote and paints a broader picture of old Abe than most of us remember from high school history. While Lincoln embraced many Republican values, Reynolds wrote, With all his faith in free enterprise and self-help, he wrote that the government must do not only what people cannot do at all, but also what they cannot so well do for themselves in their separate and individual capacities, end quote. Unlike Jackson, Lincoln was, quote, fanatically radical, but at all costs he avoided flagrant pronouncements, insults, and one-upsmanship. Instead, he used constitutional means of achieving his progressive goals, Reynolds wrote. With the possible exception of Franklin Roosevelt, no president was more effective at transforming American society through legislative and executive actions. In addition to ending slavery and reuniting the country, Lincoln's achievements include the Morrill Act of 1862, which established land-grant colleges, the Pacific Railway Act of 1862, which produced a transcontinental railroad in 1869, the Homestead Act, which opened federal lands for inexpensive settlement, the nation's first whistleblower law, the National Banking Act of 1864, which centralized and regulated finance, and the Revenue Act of 1861, which introduced the first income tax. All of which makes him a pretty good role model for 21st century Democrats. And Drew McClellan's column for marketing, Is It Me? I want to take a slight departure from my usual marketing tips this week and address an issue creating havoc in just about every business in the country. It affects your capacity to serve your customers, the opportunity to grow, to go after new prospects, and ultimately your ability to stay in business. I know of very few businesses that are not being rocked by turnover right now. Many of the businesses we work with have experienced 50, 60, 75% turnover since the fourth quarter. This is not an isolated incident at your company. This is a COVID-caused phenomenon. Economists are calling this the, quote, great resignation, end quote. The number of employees leaving their employers for new opportunities is at its highest level in more than two decades. When I look at the departures happening across all industries and businesses of all sizes, they're very different from what we typically see. What we are witnessing is another casualty of COVID. All of us were affected by the last 18 months, but for some people the effects were so profound and so personal that they are making radical choices. 
The departures we're seeing now are much more about life choices than career choices. Think about the people who have left your organization. In most cases, they didn't just trade up jobs and go to one of your competitors. They're going back to school or moving closer to family or choosing to work for a nonprofit. They're taking a, quote, safe job. They're staying home to raise their kids. But in most cases, it is far less a strategic career move. It is a survival tactic. This is about people being afraid, or in some cases about them needing to make a dramatic change in their life to feel as though they're taking back the control that COVID stole from them. And for others, it's needing to be closer to family no matter the cost. This is way bigger than us. This is a long-term effect of COVID. What does this mean for us from a marketing perspective? Internally, we must be mindful of two key components. How are we handling the departures and how are we taking care of the people we still have? In terms of handling the departures, this is a time for grace and understanding. Again, the folks who are leaving us need to go. And our people are watching how we embrace that idea. We also need to remember that this may be a temporary situation. They might just need a respite and eventually want to come back. We're also going to need to be a bit of a cheerleader. It's frightening to see a good portion of your coworkers walk out the door. Your current team needs reassurance that they're not going to have to bear the increased workload, that you're working to recruit replacements, but most of all that the opportunities and culture that drew them to your organization are still there. This is also the time for us to be even more committed to our employees' well-being. It's fair to say that everyone is dealing with some remnants of COVID. It might be childcare or parental health issues. It could be a fear of being indoors with a lot of people. It might even be undefinable, but it's there. Investing in our company's culture and values right now feels like a smart play. I'm not talking about another party or potluck, but really doing the work to live up to the values that are on your wall. What better way to unite your employees and give them a reason to stay? Now more than ever, our employees need our stability, our compassion, and our commitment. Next week, we'll cover the external communication we need to be thoughtfully preparing. Now turning to the Greater Des Moines Partnerships newsletter, One Voice. Registration open for Partnerships DMDC 2021 trip. The partnership opened registration for its DMDC 2021 trip to Washington, D.C. from Wednesday, September 22nd to Friday, September 24th. DMDC is a unique opportunity for Greater Des Moines business, community, and civic leaders to promote regional and local priorities and economic development projects with one unified regional voice. The partnership's trip represents one of the largest Chamber of Commerce fly-ins in the country. The trip provides attendees with opportunities to interact with congressional leaders, Iowa's congressional delegation and their staff members, and the administration. Attendees also have the opportunity to network with fellow DSM leaders. Learn more and register at 
dsmpartnership.com forward slash dmdc. Call for 2021 Inclusion Award Applications. The partnership announced that the 2021 Inclusion Award is now open for nominations. In its ninth year, the award seeks to honor and celebrate the success of organizations that have championed diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, in their businesses, organizations, and in the community. This year's Inclusion Award application has been adapted to evaluate the responses organizations have had to Black Lives Matter and violence toward Asian communities to demonstrate their commitment to DEI, as well as their overall response to the events of the past year plus and their support to the larger community. Learn more about the Inclusion Award at dsmpartnership.com forward slash inclusion. Glad You're Here, Downtown DSM Series Announced The partnership announced the Glad You're Here, Downtown DSM Series, which was created to encourage residents to explore Downtown DSM as more people begin to participate in downtown activities and return to the office this summer. Downtown DSM Tweet Week and Out to Lunch are two of the upcoming activations in the series. Summer Startup Tour kicks off July 7th. The partnership and several organizations focused on growing the DSM startup community are working together to host the first-ever Summer Startup Tour, a month-long series of free events to welcome DSM's entrepreneurs, creators, and makers back to the community. The series kicks off on Wednesday, July 7th at Gravitate Coworking downtown. At Gravitate, the day will kick off at 8.30 a.m. with the in-person return of 1 million cups and more. Learn more and register at dsmpartnership.com forward slash events. American Equity Investment Life Insurance Company commits $5 million to Pro-Iowa Stadium Global Plaza Initiative. American Equity Investment Life Insurance Company, a Greater Des Moines-based insurance company, is the latest to join in the private fundraising effort to design and build a multi-use professional soccer stadium and global plaza in downtown DSM with a $5 million contribution. The Iowa Soccer Development Foundation, the local nonprofit in charge of the fundraising efforts, has raised over $19.6 million toward its private funding goal. And in hashtag DSM Strong bragging rights, DART announced a partnership with Bravo Greater Des Moines to produce more public art in over 70 bus shelters across the city. The Des Moines Performing Arts announced its free summer outdoor events. Upcoming events include Yoga on the Commons, Outdoor Concerts, and Water Bombs, a comedy water balloon gladiator fight. Greater Des Moines Botanical Garden partnered with Wellmark Blue Cross and Blue Shield to hold an essential health care workers weekend at the garden. Mercy One was recognized by Wellmark Blue Cross and Blue Shield for its high-quality, cost-effective maternity care. A group of Indian Hills Junior High students partnered with the City of Clive staff members and Boz Prince to design 
Keep Clive Clean, murals around the city to encourage recycling. The Lordson family announced a $1 million matching gift to help complete the final renovations to mainframe studios. Salmon's Financial Group announced a partnership with Principal Charity Classic to launch a program to address racial disparities in youth employment. Salmon's seeded the project with a donation of $50,000. Denton's Davis Brown Law Firm was recognized as a leading Iowa law firm by Chambers and Partners, a renowned researcher and publisher of global legal guides. And Broker Tech Ventures, the industry's first broker-led group and accelerator program chartered by 14 super-regional independent brokerage firms, including Holmes Murphy & Associates, announced a strategic collaboration with InsureTech Connect, the largest insurance technology conference and convening platform in the world. Partnership announces new supplier diversity training program. The partnership announced a new supplier diversity training program for small business owners and corporate purchasing agents. The supplier diversity training started with an introductory session on Tuesday, June 22nd. The subsequent training will be a two-track virtual and hybrid program built with the aim of strengthening supplier diversity efforts for corporations and small businesses. Sessions will focus on corporate demand small business supplier standards, and a chance to meet and greet with corporate decision makers. Register for the upcoming supply diversity training events at dsmpartnership.com forward slash events. New Court Avenue Entertainment Experience Polk County, the City of Des Moines, the Greater Des Moines Partnership, Catch Des Moines, and Historic Court District announced a new entertainment experience for downtown DSM. Through September 4th, parts of Court Avenue will close to vehicle traffic on Fridays and Saturdays from 9 p.m. to 2 a.m. The closure will create an entertainment zone open to those 21 and over to enjoy additional live music and vendors, as well as visit their favorite bars and restaurants. The limited road closures will allow establishments to expand patio seating and provide room for outdoor entertainment, including DJs and live music. About the Partnership the Greater Des Moines Partnership is the economic and community development organization that serves Greater Des Moines, DSM, Iowa. Together with 24 affiliate chambers of commerce, more than 6,500 regional business members, and more than 365 investors, the partnership drives economic growth with one voice, one mission, and as one region. And that does it for today's reading of the business record for June 25th, 2021. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.